All right, so let me introduce tonight's speaker for another Francis Tower Museum evening lecture. Bruce Ragsdale is the author of Washington at the Plow, The Founding Farmer and the Question of Slavery. He was a fellow at the Washington Library and the International Center for Jefferson Studies. He was Mount Vernon's inaugural fellow with the Georgian Papers Program and also formerly served as the director of the Federal Judicial History Office at the Federal Judicial Center. I'm now going to turn it over to you, Bruce. Right, thank you, Sarah. I'm delighted to be here, be able to participate um, from afar and um, speak to another audience about, um, about this book. This, this book is, is the first um, on Washington's life as a farmer um, based on his voluminous correspondence and on um, his detailed financial records, many of which have not been published, and also on plantation records, which have not been published. And so it explores what is probably the least familiar uh, dimension of the most familiar of Americans. Um, a, a British visitor to Mount Vernon in 1785 reported that um, in, in the years following the Revolutionary War, Washington's greatest pride was to be considered the first farmer of America. Washington's been celebrated for many kinds of firsts, but uh, first farmer is a, a title and accolade that's been lost to the nation's memory of, of, of Washington. And in researching this book, I wanted to find out why, why um, uh, he so preferred um, his life as a farmer, and also um, why this title would have been so important to him in the years immediately following the Revolutionary War and his role in securing American independence. And what I found again and again is, is that no one can fully understand Washington without some sense of why he um, devoted so much attention to farming, and also what he hoped to um, contribute to the new nation through his agricultural innovations. Washington considered farming the activity best suited to his disposition. It was certainly what he most enjoyed. He said it was more rewarding than a succession of military victories ever could have been. And, and his lifetime of, of farming reveals a, a, a personal side and a private side of Washington was just not evident in his role as a general or as, as president. And as farmer, you see someone who's deeply connected to the natural world around him. In many ways, he was a, a, an intuitive farmer, um, could read the landscape, read the soil wherever he traveled and, and understand what kind of uh, farming would, would uh, be best suited to that place. Um, you also find an intellectual curiosity we don't usually associate with, um, with Washington. He was a very bold experimenter. He was a risk taker um, uh, as, as a farmer. And also he was, he was an active participant in a transatlantic uh, community of self-consciously enlightened landowners who were dedicated to sharing their experience and their knowledge of agriculture. Um, and, and of um, scientific experiment. So in other words, what we find here is, is a man of the enlightenment in a way that we um, don't associate as much with Washington as we do with other founders, but he clearly was, and he was recognized as such by a much broader um, uh, community. But farming also was never um, just a, a, a private enterprise or a source of uh, income for Washington. Um, agriculture, he said, would be one of the most important foundations of, um, of, of uh, the new nation and its respectability and influence within the Atlantic world. Um, and, and he in always intended his own innovations in farming to contribute to a broader prosperity. First in Virginia, when he transitioned from tobacco to wheat cultivation and choosing wheat because uh, uh, it could be traded to new markets outside the restrictions of the British Empire. And then following the Revolutionary War, when he's committed to a kind of diversified farming that he thinks will join the nation together in a common commercial enterprise um, and a kind of farming that he thinks could be extended um, in, into Western territories. Um, uh, in his own lifetime, um, in his own lifetime, um, Washington's innovations in agriculture were much more widely recognized um, and, and well-known. And farming was actually an important part of the celebration of, of the heroic uh, Washington. When he re returned from war to resume his life uh, as a farmer at Mount Vernon, 
Washington was hailed in the United States and in Europe as, as um, the American Cincinnatus, comparing him to the great um, Roman um, leader uh, who had left his farm and plow to defend uh, the Republic in battle, and who then, when offered arbitrary power, uh, rejected that offer and returned to the plow, returned to his farm. And in the 18th century, that image of Cincinnatus at the plow was considered um, a model of civic virtue. And, and the image of Washington at the plow, made more real by his actual preference for farming and his return to, to his farm, um, became a demonstration of his own um, patriotic um, uh, virtue. And the most famous representation of Cincinnatus at the time was this uh, very well-known standing sculpture of Washington created by the French sculptor Houdon for the state capital in Richmond. Um, and after consulting with Benjamin Franklin and Thomas Jefferson and with some input from Washington himself, Houdon um, decided not to present uh, Washington in the ancient garb uh, associated with Cincinnatus, but rather in modern dress. And he presents him not with the plow that normally is associated with uh, the ancient Roman, but rather um, here leaning up against his boot, the, the uh, mold board of the plow. And along his side, um, the plow was a drill plow like that that had been designed by Washington and manufactured by uh, the enslaved carpenters and blacksmiths at, at Mount Vernon. Um, and um, this, um, again, when Washington ret uh, retires from the presidency in 1797, he again is associated with the plow. Here he is in an image that was created actually for a dinner, um, marking his resignation for, or retirement from the presidency. And he's surrendering the symbols of, of authority on the throne of liberty. But with his left hand, he's gesturing back to Mount Vernon and they're waiting for him as a plow with the yoke of oxen. Um, and uh, again, the plow becomes the symbol of his um, rejection of arbitrary authority, his commitment to um, a, a, the civic benefits of, of agriculture. And, and also the plow becomes the symbol of Washington's dedication to scientific agriculture. Um, as, as these images um, suggest, Washington after 1783 is is effectively farming uh, on the public stage. Um, he attracted the attention of both Europeans as well as Americans and, and their veneration of, of Washington at the plow, this idea of the farmer dedicated to the public good. Um, this this um, veneration imposed a, a standard of expectations about the civic benefits of his farming innovations. It also imposed similar expectations um, uh, on Washington uh, that had a tremendous effect on his new reckoning uh, with slavery in the years following the Revolutionary War. Um, the, the story of Washington the farmer is the story of Washington the enslaver. And throughout his life, um, farming was inseparable from the um, manage, his management and control of enslaved laborers who provided almost all of the agricultural uh, work on his estate. And it, it's in his life as, as a farmer more than anywhere else that we can trace Washington's changing attitudes towards slavery um, and, um, and his engagement with the individual enslaved people at Mount Vernon. I show this document, which was created quite late in his life in 1799. It's a document that only recently came into the possession of, of the library at, at Mount Vernon. Um, and it, it's where Washington sets out, and you can find this on the, the website of the Washington Library, um, it, it's where Washington sets out a description of 40 enslaved laborers um, who he had hired from a neighbor and wanted to, um, to return them. Um, he was trying to reduce the number of enslaved people under um, uh, his control at Mount Vernon. But what's most interesting here is how, is how detailed this is and how closely he had observed and supervised the enslaved people, that he had a personal connection with um, most of these enslaved laborers. And yet he defined their lives almost exclusively in terms of their work, their labor, what value they provided him. Um, but he was not someone who was relying on other managers and overseers. He was someone who was involved in the day-to-day -day, uh, supervision and control of enslaved laborers in, in the fields, the people who carried out his, his agricultural um, uh, ambitions. 
And it's, it's this kind of detailed um, uh, record of, of Washington as an enslaver that is the one place um, that we can follow his um, changing attitude and often conflicted attitude towards slavery and explore how he ultimately um, confronted um, the contradiction of slavery and freedom that runs throughout the, um, uh, the, the founding era. Um, when I, I started the research for this book, I, I thought I had a pretty good sense of the trajectory of Washington's um, life as a farmer. But what I now think are probably the two most important contributions of the book came largely as surprises. And um, the first surprise was just the depth of um, Washington's enduring commitment to models of British um, agricultural improvement and British husbandry. In the middle decades of the 18th century, um, a, a transformation in um, British um, agriculture had produced dramatic increases in the productivity of, of British farms. And from as soon as Washington took over the full-time management of, of farming at Mount Vernon in 1759, he was determined to uh, adapt and, and to introduce um, those changes in um, uh, cultivation that had proved so successful in Great Britain. And he did this primarily, he learns about these cultivation methods primarily through books. And it's here that we, we see Washington's engagement with learning and sharing of, of agricultural knowledge in a, a way that it, in some ways is very surprising. And he puts together one of the, the best libraries in, in Virginia of British agricultural treatises. This is one of the first um, that he ordered through his tobacco merchants in London. Um, it was Hale's book of complete husband, complete body of, of husbandry. And within months of when he is, um, receives this book, we can trace the experiments that he undertakes, uh, the changes in uh, soil amendments that he uh, had learned about in here. Um, and it's these books that teach him None of them have anything to do with tobacco or corn, the, usual, the traditional uh, crops of, of Virginia, but it's these books that teach him about wheat cultivation, about um, the planting of grasses that can uh, allow him to increase um, the, the number of livestock. Um, but it's also as this image that I show here on the right, which is the frontispiece from Hale shows, is that these books were more than just practical guides. They, they brought with them a, a, a culture of farming. Um, they, they, book, the authors of these books um, tried to, to draw connections with um, the great um, farming um, uh, developments of, of the ancient period. And, and the idea that somehow farming could be um, part of a civic responsibility, almost a patriotic responsibility. And these books also introduce Washington to um, a whole new culture of farming that had emerged in, in Great Britain of these self-professed, self-defined um, gentlemen farmers who were actively involved in agricultural improvement, were actively involved in sharing um, the results of their experiments, and who saw their work as having a, a purpose well beyond maintaining the value of their own lands. It was a way of, of showing a model for other common farmers that um, they, they were the people who had access to knowledge and could risk experiment um, in a way that common farmers could not. And from um, a very early point, um, th this is the role to which Washington the farmer aspires throughout the rest of his life, that he sees his position at Mount Vernon, one where he can bring a new kind of farming to um, uh, his neighbors in Virginia and also later to um, farmers throughout, throughout the United States. Um, soon, what's perhaps even more surprising is that soon after the American Revolution, uh, when he returns to Mount Vernon, he, um, he announced that he would introduce what he called the complete course of, of English farming. And this was not just the cultivation methods he had relied on and introduced before the Revolutionary War, but this is a very elaborate, complicated system of crop rotations integrated with um, uh, livestock management. And he um, again returns to books. Uh, this is a book, a very influential book that had been published in um, Scotland during the American Revolution. Washington orders it soon after he's returned to Mount Vernon and decides to introduce this elaborate system of farming. It's Henry Holmes, the, the gentleman farmer. Um, Washington takes over 100 pages of notes on this, practical notes that he 
put into a notebook that he could carry with him into the fields. Um, these notes um, are uh, available on the Library of Congress uh, website. Um, but um, this um, uh, also, this new system required a complete transformation of the agricultural landscape at Mount Vernon. And um, he um, requires the enslaved to undertake um, uh, the massive work to create um, fields for rotations that extended over seven years to construct what Washington considered and probably were the largest barns um, uh, anywhere in the, in the nation. These are barns that are based on um, uh, sophisticated British designs and they're made of bricks that are, that are manufactured by the enslaved on uh, the estate at Mount Vernon. At the same time, Washington hires um, an experienced English farmer who comes to Virginia from uh, Gloucestershire um, to advise Washington and to instruct the enslaved in, in new um, cultivation techniques. And also Washington moves beyond books and becomes a correspondent with some of the most important agricultural leaders in um, Great Britain at the time. And they really become his confidants and they're the people that he learns about more about farming, also shares his um, growing contempt with most farming in the United States. The second and, and closely related surprise that came from my research was enormous, understanding the enormous effort that um, uh, Washington um, made after 1785 to adapt enslaved labor to that complicated British course of farming. This is, a system of farming that nowhere else was so closely associated with, <clears throat> with um, slavery. No one else made such a concerted effort to um, merge um, um, a reliance on enslaved laborers uh, with this kind of Brit complicated British husbandry. And before the Revolutionary War, Washington had, had been at the forefront of efforts to adapt enslaved labor to wheat cultivation as he transitioned away from, um, from tobacco. But during the Revolutionary War, he, he had privately expressed a, a desire to be done with managing enslaved laborers. Then in the 1780s, he makes several references to his um, support and principle of legislation that would um, provide for the gradual abolition of, of slavery in um, Virginia. Um, and historians, the biographers of Washington have generally um, assumed that he was trying to move away from slavery, that he did not see slavery as, as um, the, the labor system in the future of American agriculture, and that he wanted to somehow distance himself from um, reliance on slavery. And I found when you look at this institution of this new kind of new system of farming, that that was not true at all that Washington beginning in 1785 takes several decisive steps to become more exclusively reliant on enslaved labor, to give new value to the growing number of enslaved people under his control. And he does that in, in, in several ways. He, he places enslaved overseers in, in charge of four of the five um, um, farms that were dedicated to commercial agriculture. He attempted to replace um, hired white artisans with um, enslaved workers, such as the carpenters who made agricultural implements and the bricklayers who worked with the carpenters um, in the construction of the massive barns. He also instituted a, a greater specialization of enslaved labor, particularly a, a greater um, specialization by gender with women taking on um, more of the burden of um, the innumerable plow, uh, plowings that are involved in required of this British um, system of farming and, um, and becoming the predominant field laborers in much greater proportion of, uh, at every farm. There were more, far more women than men working in the fields. And that the men then took over um, a disproportionate number of, of the positions as artisans of, um, who supported this more complicated and specialized farming that required a greater specialization of, of skills. Washington recognizes right away that what he's trying to do is, is unique um, and unprecedented in, in many ways of trying to merge um, uh, British husbandry uh, methods with um, uh, a, a reliance on enslaved labor. And Certainly the, the British agricultural books on which he relied for the practical um, advice on, on farming techniques had nothing to say about 
how to manage um, labor for someone who by 1785 controlled um, over 200 enslaved blacks at, at Mount Vernon. What Washington does is he develops his own really totally original and unique system uh, for the closer supervision and accounting of um, enslaved labor. And he institutes in 1785, a system of, of weekly reports of, of labor. Um, he starts to count, uh, prepare these themselves. They then become the responsibility of the farm manager. And every week he receives um, these accounts, which most of which have, a few were published in the papers of George Washington. The great majority of them remain unpublished and they are a remarkable uh, source for understanding how um, the working lives of the enslaved change so much with this new system of farming. Um, these, um, these reports that came in every week uh, for each farm, it would tell the number of, of people working there, but enslaved people, but it, and it applied only to the enslaved, um, number of enslaved people who are working, and then it would account um, for um, how they filled the six working days of, of the week. And this system allowed Washington to supervise enslaved labor far more closely than he ever had been able to before. It also enables him to um, supervise uh, labor from afar when he's um, a delegate to the um, Constitutional Convention in Philadelphia, and especially when he's president. And when he was in Philadelphia as president, he devoted um, a large part of every Sunday to reviewing these in great detail and then writing um, equally detailed um, uh, instructions to his farm manager based on what he, what he wanted um, the, the enslaved to be working on in the coming, coming week. Um, these reports are part of a, a, a penchant for detailed record keeping and, and um, a, a detailed observation that mark all of Washington's involvement with farming. And I show this example of, of his design for a barn that was his original design for a treading barn that um, was built. And in it, um, he, he specifies exactly um, the exact dimensions of all the timbers that would be used, how they would be placed together, which would be bought from um, a mill and which would be procured and, and um, prepared on, on the estate. And he prepares this kind of detailed record, even, even at one of the busiest times of, of his presidency. Um, Another example of just the kind of um, uh, just phenomenal detail is and uh, attempt to make every farming as precise as possible is um, in the late 1780s, he returned from a day farming and decided he would determine exactly the, the number of, of seeds um, for new kinds of crops that were in a pound in a bushel that would be required to sow. And um, he's trying to, um, to bring this kind of scientific exactitude um, uh, uh, to, to farming, just as he was to, um, uh, to the supervision of, of, of labor. Um, these kinds of records, this, this, this detail, these work reports, the, the, um, the record of the crop rotations, make Mount Vernon probably the most um, thoroughly documented um, plantation of the 18th century Chesapeake. Um, and it's, it's that detail of record um, of everything from work reports, the provisioning of the enslaved or, or this kind of precision of, of um, sowing crops um, that really made this um, study possible. Um, a great challenge was merging these um, um, detailed um, records with um, the more the broader um, uh, picture of slavery that emerges from the correspondence. Um, and it's also these records that make possible the reconstruction and, and, and recovery of, of, of a great deal about the lives and um, the work of the enslaved. Um, the record is always um, imperfect because it is one that is created by Washington and by his um, uh, farm managers um, that the enslaved have almost no opportunity to have a direct role in the record keeping. Um, I, I, I'll show you just one um, sort of powerful um, representation of that. Uh, one of the um, enslaved um, labors that, that I that I find most intriguing that I would love to know more about was a man named Davy Gray. 
he was, um, Washington made him an overseer of um, uh, one of the farms beginning in 1770. Gray then goes on to be the overseer at um, three other farms at, uh, or uh, three farms at Mount Vernon. He probably knew more about farming than anybody else at Mount Vernon, including Washington, because he was supervising um, both farming and, and labor at, um, at the farms when Washington was absent during the Revolutionary War, and um, again as president. We know that Washington relied on Gray for information about um, the condition of, of the enslaved and, um, uh, and a condition of life in, in the um, slave quarters. Um, but Gray directly had no way of leaving his own record. In fact, it, the one piece of evidence we have, which is this, is that he was um, apparently illiterate. This is a receipt um, that he received um, after um, uh, selling poultry to Martha Washington the year after Washington's death. And um, it's presented with him just where he leaves an X mark, um, which would certainly indicate um, that he was illiterate, although he was involved in providing um, overseers report every week of, of the um, uh, record of work on the plantation. Um, but still, that even with these limitations and the lack of a direct voice of the enslaved, um, the farming records tell us more about uh, the life of the enslaved than many, many historians had previously thought uh, possible. Um, but the focus on, on detail and, and, um, and financial account and, and the control over the enslaved also never obscures um, uh, the aspirational vision of farming that um, Washington thought would connect the new nation to um, a world of enlightened improvement and scientific investigation of nature on both sides of the Atlantic. This is the, um, um, the seal of the Philadelphia Society for Improving Agriculture. It's a society that was established about the same time Washington decided to introduce English husbandry, the system of English husbandry at Mount Vernon. Um, they also were promoting the same kind of English um, ideals of husbandry. Uh, Washington became a member of the society. It's one of his most important American connections. Um, and um, they, he joins with this, this group that, that is trying to um, not just improve farming um, on their own farms, but also to promote a, a, a new kind of economy, a new kind of um, a foundation for commerce throughout the Atlantic world. And um, in, in the closing days of, of Washington's um, uh, uh, service in, uh, during the Revolutionary War, he frequently referred to um, uh, his anticipated life under vine and fig tree and um, carried on that um, same reference uh, biblical um, scripture from Micah about turning swords into plowshares and nations that would learn a war no more. Washington, um, in his frequent citations of, the, of this scripture, um, like many of his British correspondents, like many of his former French colleagues, his associates in the Philadelphia um, Agricultural Improvement Society, um, they, they um, all saw in, in a shared pursuit of agricultural improvement, the, the foundation of a new era of peace. Um, it's one of the things that bonded Washington with um, British agriculturalists. Um, they wanted to see a world that was freed from the mercantilist um, restrictions of the old empire, restrictions that they thought just led to conflict between nations, but that a, a common and shared pursuit of agricultural improvement would, would allow nations to develop their mutual advantages um, and open up a kind of, of free trade. And Washington becomes, um, for many advocates of improvement on both sides of the Atlantic, the, the preeminent example of, of, um, of support for this um, new order of peace based on a new kind of, of farming. When, um, when he hears of Washington's um, interest in hiring a British farmer, the great um, uh, English um, agriculturalist, um, Arthur Young, declares that, that he was glad to learn that the general had become a farmer. And that this transition from a, a world devoted to, to, um, to conflict of the old empire to one in which nations would come together in um, pursuit of agricultural improvement um, was something that, that encouraged these um, 
um, British agriculturists to support Washington, to reach out to Washington. And um, Young establishes um, a very important correspondence with um, Washington that offers both um, practical advice and uh, seeds and plows. And um, uh, another influential agriculturalist was Sir John Sinclair, uh, the first president of the British Board of Agriculture. He becomes a very important correspondent of Washington. Um, uh, who he tries to encourage Washington to establish a comparable Board of Agriculture in the United States. Um, and uh, I think he becomes the most important confidant of, of Washington in the um, 1790s. Um, but Sinclair um, remarks that Washington through um, um, his agricultural improvements that, that the, the man who had become, um, who originally had been the immediate cause of the breakup of the empire had become um, uh, the, the source of the good understanding that could exist between Great Britain and, and the United States. Um, Young and Sinclair were, were part of a, a network of improvement advocates um, who eagerly supported Washington in his experimental farming. Um, and, um, this image um, might not look like the beginning of an exchange of, of agricultural enlightenment, but in fact, it is associated with the very first improvement project following the Revolutionary War. When Washington decides he wants to breed mules, um, he had learned that uh, Spanish jackasses, which were normally prohibited from export from Spain, were the very best um, uh, animals to use to, to breed mules. He writes to several people in Europe trying to find out how he could get one. And suddenly this whole network of um, diplomats in Europe and, and dignitaries um, in, in French and, and uh, Spanish government um, try to mobilize to support Washington. When King Charles III of Spain learns about Washington's interests, he orders that two of the finest specimens that could be found be sent to Washington as a gift. Only one of the animals survived the journey and Washington named him Royal Gift. Here represented in Farmer's Almanac published in Massachusetts. Um, and Royal Gift becomes a kind of celebrity himself. He, uh, when he travels from Boston, where he had landed, to Mount Vernon, newspapers carry reports of, of the journey. Um, um, farmers throughout the United States, prominent farmers like John Jay in New York or leading um, political elite in Charleston, South Carolina, all want to bring their mares to breed with Royal Gift. Um, and the, the project doesn't get off the ground very um, easily or at first, but by the end of Washington's life, he um, has more mules um, as draft animals at Mount Vernon than he does horses or oxen. He's often thought of as the father of the American mule, among other things. And over the next 15 years, like with these connections to Young and, and Sinclair, um, Washington participated in, in a, a almost global network of exchange that brought him plants from, from Africa, from, um, from um, all parts of Europe, of livestock uh, from the West Indies as well. And also, of course, um, agricultural technology and books from, especially from, from Great Britain. Um, Washington, um, presents his estate to the many, many visitors who came pilgrimage to, to Mount Vernon really in the years after the Revolutionary War. Um, he, he presents them a landscape unlike anything else in the United States. And um, he, um, this map from 1793 shows how he had um, redesigned the farm uh, with uh, uh, not only with the seven fields that and it would be necessary, but also so that it was there for display. This is a close-up of one of the farms where he presented a, a, a tree-lined avenue going to where he had built one of the great barns uh, designed by Arthur Young. Um, and all of this is on display for visitors. He encourages visitors to go with him. Um, and they notice that, that Mount Vernon just looks different from any other American um, uh, agricultural landscape. Um, European visitors are surprised he hasn't been to Europe because he seems to have absorbed all of the ideals of, of landscape design. Um, and Washington presents this as, as a kind of ornament, as, as an expression of his own reputation. Um, 
and and it has that impact on on um, on visitors. But of course, the many um, visitors to Mount Vernon not only saw his improvements and his great um, agricultural buildings, but they also observed um, the work of the enslaved who had made possible Washington's um, ambitious projects. And just this is an image from the early 1790s um, of, of Mount Vernon done by Edward Savage. And it's one of the very few images that shows um, a residence of the enslaved. To the right is the, what had been called the House for Families, uh, torn down soon after this. And then next to that is what, uh, the greenhouse, which also included um, residents of the enslaved. Um, but it was impossible to visit Mount Vernon and not see how um, dependent Washington was on enslaved labor, um, to not see the condition of the enslaved. And, and just as agriculturalists on, on both sides of the Atlantic understood um, the powerful symbol of, of the military leader turned innovative farmer, so anti-slavery advocates um, were convinced that Washington's support for, for their cause and Washington's <laughs> potential emancipation of the enslaved under his control would promote a wider support for ending slavery. And the earliest um, documented appeal to, to Washington was from his dear friend Lafayette, who had asked Washington to join him in an experiment to train um, enslaved laborers to, um, to be free and self-sufficient tenants. Washington receives personal appeals from religious leaders. Um, the Quaker, um, the, I'm sorry, the French abolitionist Jacques-Pierre Brousseau, a friend of Lafayette's, goes to Mount Vernon um, to appeal to Washington to establish and then lead um, an abolitionist society. And he presented Washington with the argument that, that um, it would be fitting if the man he called the savior of America um, also brought freedom to the hundreds of thousands of, of Blacks who um, remained in bondage in the United States. And these appeals to Washington, um, including the ones in, in the press that were far, often far more critical, um, would continue through the rest of his life. And, and they are uniquely directed at Washington. Um, Washington is the one slaveholding founder who attracted these appeals from abolitionists like, like no other uh, during his own lifetime. But, Apart from a few uh, private uh, comments um, in support of the principle of gradual abolition, a change in Washington's attitude towards slavery was, was only evident in his management of agricultural labor and in his efforts as, as a farmer. And in the, in the years after he first heard the appeals of abolitionists, um, he attempted to shield the enslaved at, at Mount Vernon um, from, from what he perceived to be the most inhumane and brutal aspects of slavery. He resolved to end um, the purchase or sale of enslaved laborers and to protect families, to keep families together. He insisted that the enslaved families receive adequate provision and medical care. And he discouraged the um, violent punishment of laborers who had failed to um, meet the demands for, for work. But in returns for these limited productions, um, Washington imposed greater demands um, that enslaved laborers work, what he described as sun up to sundown, six days a week throughout the year, and what he defined as, as their duty. Um, but um, Washington wrote a friend that he didn't like to, to think, let alone um, talk about slavery, but in fact, he thought about slavery all the time. But um, the only record he left that we can follow that's in any detail is that related to um, farming. And it's in this meticulous record of the supervision of, of um, enslaved laborers that um, you can find just the first revelation of Washington's gradual recognition of, of um, the incompatibility of slavery with um, his particular vision of, of agricultural improvement. First, he found that, that um, he repeatedly hired British-born managers and artisans, hoping to draw on their experience in, on British farms. And in each case, he um, concluded that the individuals were unable to um, manage enslaved labor in the, uh, with the same constant supervision that he um, exercised, that there seemed to be a, a disconnect between English agricultural experience or British agricultural experience and the ability to control enslaved labor. 
And in, as president, he traveled throughout the United States, visiting many places for the first time. And he develops a deeper understanding of, of the ways in which slavery had um, differentiated grain farming in Virginia and Maryland from the same kind of farming in, in the states that relied on free labor. And it was in Pennsylvania in particular, where he lived um, for seven years as, as president. And he, he closely observed what um, um, he, ultimately acknowledged to be the superior improvements in farming in, in Pennsylvania, which he attributed um, to, to the state's laws mandating gradual abolition. And near the end of his second term as presidency, he, uh, as president, he, he finally admits that um, Virginia would need to do the same thing, that they would need to um, enact some kind of gradual abolition if, if they were ever going to um, keep up with the kind of agricultural improvement that he recognized in, in Pennsylvania. And on a more personal level, Washington um, um, attempted to manage um, the farms at Mount Vernon from the distance of Philadelphia, and he became increasingly frustrated. Um, um, he expressed an uh, uh, unprecedented impatience and even anger with the enslaved laborers whom he regularly accused of theft and of neglect of work. And he feared that, that, that the whole control over enslaved laborers at his estate had broken down in his absence. And, by the close of his presidency, he concedes to one of his managers that his attempts to manage enslaved labor um, in an ostensibly more humane uh, way had failed um, to secure the orderly work that he, he demanded. Um, by that time, toward the, at the end of his uh, second term as president, Washington recognizes that um, Virginians will never endorse legislation um, for gradual abolition. And he had determined to make some effort, some way to find some way to emancipate the enslaved under his ownership. And in fact, this, this map, which is um, uh, based on a survey of 1793, that's often pointed to as, as a record of his success as, as an agriculture improver, was actually created to break up the, um, the state. Um, and it was part of a very elaborate plan that um, uh, this book provides the first um, full description of a plan by which he hoped to lease um, the um, farms to experienced British farmers who would somehow rely on free labor and whose, um, whether it be hiring uh, the former slaves at the Mount Vernon, but would enable him to free the enslaved um, uh, that he owned. Um, and um, the, Despite the assistance of several influential friends in, in Great Britain, Washington never finds the British farmers to carry on his improvements. And he privately declared that um, um, he would never rent the farms to what he called the slovenly farmers of the United States. Um, and, but when the plan came to nothing, um, which he recognizes sometime in 1798, he decided to hire out as many of the enslaved under his, uh, many of the enslaved under his control. And he searched for ways to employ um, the remaining enslaved laborers at Mount Vernon or on his Western lands. And it would only be with his death that he provided for their freedom. In the summer of 1798, five months before um, his unexpected death, Washington drafted the will that provided for the freedom of um, more than 120 enslaved people. He ensured that once freed, the, the elderly and the infirm would be cared for um, throughout their life, and the young would, um, would, uh, um, would, would be educated to support themselves. But in his will, um, as dramatic as it was and unexpected as, as it was, he offered no principled words um, condemning slavery. He still believed that his actions and examples um, were enough. Um, and as he probably understood and, and had expected, his, his example in this case had almost no effect on other enslavers. It did not um, uh, start, uh, start a, a movement toward um, emancipation of, of slaves in Virginia. And, and, and his emancipation in many ways was minimized in the historical memory of Washington, particularly in, in the 19th century. And it was certainly dissociated from um, his agricultural improvements. 
Um, just in closing now, I um, just wanted to say that several years after um, Washington returned to his life as a full-time farmer um, following the Revolutionary War, um, he, he wrote um, that the life of a husbandman uh, was the most enjoyable and delectable of all. And quote, he said, to see plants rise from the earth and flourish by the superior skill and bounty of the laborer fills the contemplative mind with ideas which are more easy to be conceived than expressed. Um, and visitors um, to the most public room at Mount Vernon um, would have seen Washington's um, own designs representative of this ideal of, of the natural bounty of the rural landscape and the dignity of labor. Here on the frieze, you see this, um, the sign and the rake, uh, part of wheat cultivation on the ceiling are more uh, stucco um, decorations associated with um, wheat cultivation. And it, it, these, these are representative of an ideal um, that had attracted Washington to British writing on um, agricultural improvement as a, as a young planter, and, and that also guided his dramatic <clears throat> reorganization of every aspect of farming following the Revolutionary War. Um, and his engagement with the community of enlightened agricultural leaders in Great Britain and deepened his conviction that the example of farming he pursued at the new nation uh, 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 would enable the new nation to prosper with um, through pe peaceful commerce. But that ideal of, of rural life and agricultural bounty um, would always remain in conflict with the system of labor um, that, that depended on um, violence and a denial of individual liberty. And in this book, I've, I've tried to um, recover a neglected and I think a central part of, of Washington's life. And I hope it also shows how his pursuit of a particular model of agricultural improvement uh, ultimately and uniquely to Washington convinced him that, that slavery had no place in an enlightened and commercially prosperous um, republic. So, thank you. And if there are any questions, I'd be delighted to take them now. Thank you. Um, I'm going to turn it over to Ali. She will be um, asking our questions. If you have a question that you haven't put in the chat or the Q&A yet, feel free to drop it in there now. Great. Thank you so much, Bruce. We got a lot of really good questions. Um, so I have amazing ones to pick from. Um, my first question is, at the very beginning, you mentioned that Washington had designed a plow himself. What was special or different about that? Um, he, he designed several plows. In fact, one of the first things he does um, when he comes back to Mount Vernon in 1759 is to work with an enslaved blacksmith to design a plow. Plows had not been generally used in, in um, many parts of Virginia. It had been the hoe that was used. Uh, but the one that was shown with the um, in the statue of the, the Houdon sculptor is a drill plow, um, which he designed. And a drill plow um, cuts a furrow and then um, allows seed to be dropped so that it is seeding as, as it moves um, along. And he designs his own um, version of that. He shares it with several other farmers in um, Virginia and in South Carolina. And it's something that his, um, the enslaved blacksmiths and uh, carpenters became adept at both constructing these and in um, and repairing them. Great. Um, so obviously, um, European farming, very big for him. Was the terrain at Mount Vernon similar to that of Britain? Well, no, of course, not. I mean, not exactly, no. Um, although the farming wasn't, uh, and the, um, wasn't as different as one might think. Um, the farmer who came, I actually, this summer, I went and found the farm where James Bloxham had, had worked for 20 years as a, as a farm manager in the Cotswolds in Gloucestershire. And I will say I was a little surprised because the, the landscape looked remarkably like the part of Virginia where Mount Vernon is. But what was very different was the soil. And um, the, the soil at Mount Vernon was never very good. It's a very shallow soil. It hits a clay uh, very quickly. And it really wasn't the best place to introduce um, plow culture um, or the kind of um, varied crops that Washington attempts. And I'm struck by how he adheres to British models for many years before he will give up on any kind of particular plant or particular kind of plowing. Um, and um, uh, he, he's convinced he needs to try and make these things work, even though uh, the, 
the, the uh, soil was quite different from what it was uh, in the uh, where the, the books he was relying on had been written for. Great. Um, what are, can you give some examples of the new agricultural improvements that Washington was interested in that he learned about in his correspondence with uh, British farmers? I mean, the most important one was um, developing crop rotations and figuring out what was considered the highest ideal of, of, a, of an engaged, improving uh, landowner was to be able to develop a system of crop rotations that was suited to one's particular soil. And um, so Washington is constantly experimenting. He begins with the British model. And what it usually is, is he starts with grain crops that are the most exhausting, he starts with the wheat and corn. Then he grows clover to restore the soil or to use as a green manure. He relies on a year or two of pasturing with the sheep to manure the fields. Um, and that, that is his greatest focus um, in terms of actual cultivation. But Washington also has a very strong interest in the technology of farming. He relies on his British tobacco merchants in the 1760s to provide him new kinds of plows, new kinds of size. Um, later, he's particularly interested in threshing machines. And uh, toward the end of his life, he um, is, is having the enslaved construct various models of, of threshing machines based on both American and um, British um, uh, mod models of that. Uh, Great. Um, did Washington and Jefferson or Adams too, did they ever treat any ideas about farming? Oh, absolutely. Um, and uh, they have a, a wonderful short friendship based on farming. When Jefferson comes back from France, um, in late 1789, he decides he wants to introduce at Monticello um, the same kind of, of improved farming that Washington had introduced. And he relies very heavily on Washington's advice. He goes uh, to Mount Vernon. He stops at Mount Vernon going to and from Monticello when they're both on their way to Philadelphia. And Washington um, gives him a tour of the farms, takes him out to see how the crop rotations work in practice. Um, they also exchanged um, information about uh, technology. Uh, Jefferson had um, had a model created of a, of a Scottish kind of thresher. And um, Washington takes the specifications for that and takes it back to Mount, Mount Vernon where he has the carpenters construct um, this um, machine. They also, I think most intriguingly, they both talk about the challenge of adapting enslaved labor to this kind of British husbandry. Um, they both try to make the same efforts to um, change uh, the way, uh, the, the kind of person who oversees uh, the enslaved to, to somehow make um, slavery less brutal. Um, but of course, their farming friendship breaks apart when their political friendship breaks apart in 1796. Um, but their last letter, it's very touching actually, they both respond the same way and say enough of these differences let's talk about my peas and clover and they go on too so it was it was neutral ground for them great um did washington ever employ any uh european indentured servants or was it exclusively um enslaved labor no he he definitely has quite a few indentured servants uh, quite a few over the years um washington tries to um train enough of the enslaved laborers that he can dispense with the expense of, of hiring, uh, of buying indentured servitude time or, or hiring artisans. He's never successful in doing that. He's never able to give up hiring certain kinds of specialized um, artisans. So that he has all, <clears throat> all kinds of, of people who come as um, ditchers, that sounds like terrible work, but it's actually kind of hydraulic engineers. He has a German ditcher who helps to train the enslaved. He has a Scottish carpenter who brings special kinds of skills that again, Washington hopes to um, uh, train the enslaved in, but he is never entirely successful with dispensing with um, reliance on either indentured servants or um, hired white artisans. But that's a very good question. And, and it, it actually, is, I think, contributes to Washington's sense that um, of, of the irreconcilability of enslaved labor and improved agriculture. Great. Um, so how active was Martha in managing the estate and any of the um, enslaved labor or anything like that? 
I wish I knew. Uh, the, you know, we know there's so little record of, of Martha's involvement, but every indication is that she followed it very, very closely. Um, and when Washington goes off, um, off to the revolution and becomes the commander of the Continental Army, she remains in charge of the estate. She's overseeing the enslaved. She makes, um, Washington paid um, a small amount of money, a token amount to enslaved overseers. Um, and Martha makes sure that they continue to get that um, after Washington goes off to war. There are a couple of other sort of just anecdotal information that, that Martha was following it very closely, um, at least the business. There's one case where Washington briefly grows tobacco again in the, uh, when, um, the late 1780s, just because he's trying to find some more revenue. It doesn't work. And he has a number of hogsheads of tobacco that are sitting in a warehouse for several years. And he finally said, let's get rid of these, let's sell them, the market's not going to come back. And he says that he had forgotten they were there, but that Mrs. Washington reminded me that these hogsheads were in a, a Georgetown um, warehouse. That tells me there was frequent conversation about um, um, the particulars of, of, of farming. Got it, great. Um, so do we have any record of any opinions of what the enslaved people at Mount Vernon thought of Washington? Not direct records during his lifetime. Um, what we do know is that um, there were enslaved people, especially um, Davy Gray, whom I mentioned, who did um, take um, particular complaints and, and uh, uh, to Washington. They um, at least were confident that Washington would listen to their complaints, particularly about the amount of, of food um, that was being distributed. Um, and there also were complaints about treatment by some of the overseers. Um, so indirectly through Washington's account of it, um, we can get a sense that there um, I think a surprising amount of conversation between Washington and the enslaved, um, but it would only be um, much, much longer after his um, death that people, um, some of the enslaved gave um, basically oral histories um, in which they would um, talk about Washington, but it's not, it's nothing like you, you wish you could find there. Yeah, I understand. Um, which particular mercantilist policies did Washington and his British counterparts consider as leading to war? Oh, um, the restrictions on um, on trade and uh, particularly in, um, after the Revolutionary War, Washington is very worried about the reimposition of kind of neo-mercantilism, uh, preventing the um, Americans from trading to uh, the Caribbeans, uh, to Caribbean islands was the biggest concern. Um, and that these kinds of restrictions on trade, uh, they thought would only um, result in further uh, conflict and war. And also before the revolutionary Washington, is, um, he tries to take advantage of, of loopholes in the Navigation Act, or at least uh, to find things that can be traded uh, um, outside the restrictions because he just thinks it's a natural, um, uh, the natural advantages of, of Virginia farmers would um, uh, uh, lead them to trade elsewhere and, and that it was just um, a restriction on, on everyone's economic growth to um, adhere to these older controls on like the war on tobacco. Okay, um, this is going to be my last question and arguably the most important. Um, if you could dine with anyone at France's Tavern, who would you choose? Um, well, actually, if there's any person, I um, well, obviously, we'd love to dine with Washington and ask him these kinds of questions about slavery, that the kinds of things he just didn't um, put in record. He goes out of his way not to put anything in writing, and you can even see where he um, um, uh, will say, "We'll talk about it when you get here." To Lafayette, to David Stewart, to various people, and even with his most radical plans to move away from, uh, to move somehow toward emancipation, um, he makes clear he's not going to put this in writing. The one time he um, he does say that he wants to liberate a certain species of property, he writes that to Tobias Lear, um, but he puts that on a separate sheet of paper, and it only survives because Lear and his family kept it. When Washington makes the formal record, which he always did, a copy of, um, of his correspondence, he omitted that passage. So that's the questions I would most want to ask Washington. 
All right. Thank you so much, Bruce, for all that, all those great answers and the wonderful presentation. Thank you, Allie, for moderating our Q&A. Thank you to those at home for submitting questions. Unfortunately, we never have enough time to get to all of them, but thank you for sending them in. If you enjoyed tonight's lecture, um, I'd like to stay up to date with all of our programs. You can join our mailing list by going to our website, francistavernmuseum.org. There you will also find our social media accounts and our calendar of upcoming programs. Our next lecture is going to be on March 10th. It is not on the website yet, but it will be up there very shortly for you to register for. Thank you to those of you who have donated to the museum. Your generous support helps us fulfill our mission and share the history of the American Revolutionary Era with the public. If you would like to make a donation, you can also do that at francistavernmuseum.org. So thank you again for joining us at another Francis Tavern evening lecture. We hope to see you again soon.